Friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, you don't own a copy of the Bible, we've provided Bibles. We'd love for you to take one of them and especially love for you to use it this morning while we spend the next few minutes of our time uh, walking through a section of it. You'll find what we're going to look at this morning on page 898 of the little Bible that should be there in front of you. Uh, when I first laid out our sermon schedule months ago and scheduled 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for this Sunday, I didn't know what we'd go through this last week. I didn't know anything about the shock and the grief and the confusion and the fear. There were points uh, in this last week where I was seriously wrestling with whether or not to just call an audible and, and focus on something different. That could be a really good thing to do in a situation like this. I, for one, needed to hear about Jesus as a good shepherd from John 10. I needed to know he's a shepherd who, who watches over his sheep, who protects his sheep, provides for them, lays down his life for them, all so that no one can snatch them out of his hand. I needed to know that God is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer, Psalm 18. I needed to be told again about the new heavens and the new earth, our future home, from Revelation 21. And, and of course, I, I need all those reminders. You need all those reminders. We, we ought to be reminding each other these truths all the time, and especially in weeks like the one we just had. I mean, that's one reason that the service we've had so far this morning up to this point has been so full of these themes, these, these songs, these scriptures. I need these reminders, and you do too. But I'm as convinced as I can be that we also need precisely the medicine that Paul gives us at the heart of this nitty-gritty chapter about sex and slavery and singleness and marriage. We also need 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We started this chapter last week. Uh, we, we said then at the time that Paul is mostly in this section writing in response to questions he was asked from these brand new Christians who were still trying to connect the dots between the things they'd come to believe about Jesus and the way they were living and the kind of customs they were used to. And they had a lot of questions, especially about what kind of changes they needed to make to the circumstances in their lives. If they wanted to be faithful Christians, if they wanted to live a spiritual life to the fullest, if they wanted to connect with God deeply, what should they change? And it seems like there was a group of them that thought that what they need to do is say no to a lot of pleasures they might have taken for granted in the past. They need to strip away a lot of the things that, that they had once taken for granted. They need to, to hone in and focus only with all of their attention and all of their affection on, on, on Christ and on, on serving him. And Paul is writing to say, nope, not true. It's not how it works. They were wondering, if I want to be a faithful Christian, should I abstain from this or that? Do I need to get married to a, a Christian? Do I need to get out of the marriage that I'm already in? Should I be circumcised if I haven't been yet? What do I need to do? What do I need to change to reach the next level? And Paul writes to them not to tell them what to do, but to give them new perspective. What they need most is perspective. He wants them to see their lives and all of the important questions that they were asking about what to do next in light of what's already been done for them in Christ 
and in light of what will be done for them when he returns. He wants them to see everything through Christ. Friends, the key to spiritual maturity, the key to growth and joy as a Christian, the key to holding on in faith when we're grieved and afraid is perspective. The perspective that Paul writes this chapter to give to us. I want to read now, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 7 and reading all the way to the end of the chapter. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read. This is the word of the Lord. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called... There let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. 
But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I see two simple commands buried in these two sections of super practical teaching. These friends Paul's writing to want to know what spiritual maturity looks like. They want to know if the, the, the key to them reaching the next level is them making some sort of change in their circumstances. And Paul tells them, in essence, two things. Remain where you are and enjoy God. Remember where you're going and serve God. Two simple commands for them and for us this morning. Remain where you are and enjoy God. And remember where you're going and serve God. Point number one, remain where you are and enjoy God. We're picking up in verse 17, which we touched on already last week. It's the the central paragraph in this chapter. It's kind of a hinge for what comes before it and what comes after it. It it reaches in both directions and, and gives perspective to both sections of practical teaching. Again, they're looking at changes to practical circumstances. They want to be more spiritual. What do I have to adjust if I want to connect with God deeply and know him personally and enjoy him fully? And Paul's answer in verses 17 to 24 is nothing. Nothing whatsoever. You don't have to change a thing. You can enjoy him right where you are right now. All you need is imagination. All you need is a right perspective on who he already is to who you are right now. He gives examples of this perspective. He lays it out in verse 17, then gives us two examples. He starts with circumcision. That's a really familiar one for him to go to in all of his letters. He's, he's, he's often writing to churches that included a good number of Jewish Christians who would have been circumcised as part of their Jewish upbringing, and, and then Gentile Christians who have become Christians without that upbringing and wonder, what should we do? Do we need to look like our Jewish friends? So it's not surprising that Paul goes there and tells them, no, you don't have to get circumcised to qualify for God. You don't have to reverse your circumcision either. It just doesn't matter. Whether you're circumcised or not counts for nothing, Paul says. That's verse 19. So far, so good. But then his next example, this one brings us to a screeching halt. Look back at the text with me. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. If we're talking about circumcision, I get it. Verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Are you a slave right now? Do not be concerned about it. Wait, what? I think it helps to know that Paul's not looking for some sort of hypothetical shock value in going to this example. He's not being hyperbolic here. 
He's writing to a church in a city where up to a third of the population was enslaved. This church would have had slaves in it. He was writing to people who were real in this circumstance and really suffering. And if anybody had any reason to be discontent with their place in life, it was a slave in Roman Corinth. Far more than somebody else on his list in, verse, or in chapter 7 here. Far more than somebody with an unfulfilling sex life or unwanted singleness or a troubled marriage or regrets about circumcision. A Corinthian slave had every reason to want a different life than the life they were living. I mean, slavery in the Roman world was very different from the slavery we're familiar with from the, the United States past. It wasn't tied to ethnicity. It wasn't perpetual, something that someone could be born into and have their children born into and have their children born into over and over. Uh, it, it was different in some important ways. In some cases, slaves would actually sell themselves into slavery based on a contract they would make with an owner for a specific amount of time to fulfill a specific role, maybe something they were professionally skilled at as a musician or a teacher. It was different from what we're familiar with in our history. But plenty of others got into slavery because they got into debt or because they happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when the Roman army came charging through the provinces. They were captured as prisoners of war. They were scooped up in a raid on a village and then spent their life working for other people. Many of these slaves would have worked in horrible conditions. Many of them surely would have worked under abusive owners. Many of them would have had basically zero functional civil rights. And surely they would have felt, surely they really actually were completely vulnerable to the whims of people who didn't actually care about them. However different like Roman world slavery may have been from slavery in antebellum United States, and however in these individual slaves may have ended up enslaved, and whatever their experience might have been to this point on the spectrum of horrible, nobody would have preferred to be a slave than to be free. Which is to say, the slavery Paul's talking about here was a form of suffering. He's writing to people who were suffering. And he's telling these real people who were really suffering, don't be concerned about it. Why? How could he tell them this? What does he even mean? Let me clear away a couple of common misconceptions so that we can see better what we have to learn from what Paul's saying right here. I, I think, first of all, you have to see Paul is, he is no fan of slavery. That's a misconception you might take from this, from this text. He is not blind to what slavery does to a person's life as if he knows he might be misunderstood on that point. He immediately in verse 21 says, hey, look, if you can get free, do it. If you have any way to get out of that situation, you should get out of that situation. Avail yourself of the opportunity, he says. This text and others like them, it has been abused in the past by slave owners who wanted to justify their exploitation of people made in God's image. 
in many cases, of people who were their brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul gives no cover to that evil in this text. It's also important to notice that he's not talking about slavery as a system here. He's not given any kind of comment on whether or not things ought to be this way. He's not saying that he thinks this is good, as this setup in Roman society is working for everybody. He's not commenting on that at all. It's not like he's saying, in other words, hey, you know what? It's no biggie that slavery exists. Don't be concerned about it. Or, or, or to a slave owner. It's no biggie that you've got slaves. Uh, you know, each to his own. You want some slaves? Have some slaves. He's not actually speaking to slave owners here at all. He does in other places and he gives them different instruction. No, he's speaking to, here's the main thing you need to know. He's speaking directly here to slaves who were on the bottom rung of that social status ladder that everybody was climbing in Corinth. And he's telling them right where they are, that is not who you are. You are not how your city sees you. You are not who you are to your owner. You are not whatever you might have done to get yourself into this position. You are defined by the God who called you right where you are. Or as Paul puts it, he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. Paul is leveling the playing field here. He's knocking over that status ladder. He's saying those who are enslaved are already free where it matters most. They're free from sin. They're free from death. They're free from bondage to the evil one. And those who are free but in Christ are slaves where it matters most. They belong to Jesus. Their lives are now on his agenda, not anybody else's. You are who you are to God. That's what he's telling them. And you were bought with a price, he says in verse 23. You are precious to him. He sent his only son so, so that the penalty for your sin could be paid in full so that you could know him and enjoy him forever. That's who you are, right where you are, no matter what anybody else says about you. So, verse 24 sums it up. In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Not stay stuck in slavery, whether you can get out or not, but know that right there, even as a slave, you are free where it counts. You are with God, and that's what matters. Can you see what Paul's doing here? He's not trying to give his blessing to some sort of unjust, oppressive system. And he's not trying to minimize the suffering of these slaves. He's not trying to tell them, just get over it. It's no big deal. He's, he's certainly not telling them they can't change their situation. He basically tells them the opposite. If you can, get out of there. What he's telling them is that they don't have to change their circumstances to enjoy what matters most. Or as one person put it, being a slave is no obstacle to living the Christian life. Right here, right now, where you are, you can know everything God wants you to know about who he is and what it is to have him for your God. You can enjoy the God who bought you at a price. That is liberating new perspective for a slave in first century Corinth. And friends, he is offering that perspective to us too. 
Isn't it so easy to focus on what's wrong in our lives? And in a broken world like this one, we have so many options to choose from. And you just kind of like water always runs to the lowest place, puddles there. It is so easy for me, probably for you too, to have our thoughts and our affections trickle down to whatever seems to be the most wrong about our lives and get stuck there. And when that happens, from our perspective, what's wrong is what seems most real. What's wrong is what seems most definitive. What's wrong is most impactful. And we can slip into thinking that living like our lives are are basically on hold, almost in hostage to these circumstances that we don't want. And that any kind of meaningful joy, any kind of closeness to God, we'll have to wait until we can get that thing fixed, whatever it might be. Oh, if I could just get into a better job, one that's got better hours, one that's less stressful, then I'd have the, the time and the space to kind of breathe and focus on him. If I just had better friends who were more there for me, quicker to listen, slower to speak, more dependable. Then I'd have the support I need to grow as a Christian. If my budget weren't so tight, I could actually stop worrying so much and start thinking about what I can contribute to God and his kingdom. If only my kids weren't so busy with stuff every night of the week. If only my body could get healthy again. Then I'd start living. If only I, you fill in the blank. If only then, then I could know what it is to enjoy God. Friends, Paul is hitting us right there. He is challenging us. He is telling us whatever your situation might be, whatever you'd like to change about it, however real your suffering might be, as real as the suffering of a first century slave, your suffering is no obstacle to enjoying him. In fact, it is your opportunity. See, Paul spoke as one who knew. He wasn't a slave in first century Roman Empire terms. He wasn't exactly a slave, but he was thrown in prison often enough. He was on the receiving end of whips hurled by Roman soldiers and stones thrown by a mob after mob. He lived in and out of one town after another with no home to really call his own. His life ran the full gamut of ups and downs. So when he writes to them and says, right here, right now, right where you are, be there with God, he writes of what he knows, of what he's experienced. He's echoing here what he says in Philippians chapter 4, where he says, I know how to be brought low. Boy, have I been low. But I know how to abound too. In any and every circumstance, he wrote to the Philippians. In any circumstances, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So we're thinking, what's the secret, Paul? Tell us, what have you learned? I want to know. And 
his answer, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Friends, that's not a statement that belongs in the mouth of a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. That's the statement that belongs in the mouth of man hounded by the powers that be for all of his adult life. What Paul is getting at is what a wonderful Puritan writer named Jeremiah Burroughs was getting at in this, this simple but powerful example. Let me read it to you. To be content, Burroughs says, as a result of some external thing, some circumstance you could change, is like warming a man's clothes by the fire. You guys ever do that? You ever cold and you kind of toss a shirt or a, a blanket into the dryer and turn it on, get it nice and warm, pull it out and put it on? We're the only family that's ever done that on a cold night. Works for how long? Maybe two minutes. But to be content, Burroughs says, through an inward disposition of soul, oh, that's like the warmth that a man's clothes have from the heat of his body. A man who's healthy in body puts on his clothes and perhaps at first on a cold morning they feel cold. But after he's had them on a little while, they're warm. Now how did they get warm, Burroughs says? They were not near the fire. No. This came from the natural heat of his body. You see what he's saying? A change in circumstance is like throwing on a blanket you just warmed up in the dryer. Maybe it gives you a boost of happiness for five minutes. Then you're cold again. But through Christ who strengthens me, there is an inward disposition, a heat source from the inside that can warm any circumstance over time. That's the secret that Paul learned and wants his friends to know. That's the liberating perspective he's offering us. God can warm us right where we are when we see ourselves and our circumstances as those who belong to God bought with a price. The question we ought to be asking is how does the situation God's put me in help me enjoy him better? What am I learning now about his goodness that I couldn't have known otherwise? Those are everyday questions, friends, questions we should be asking every day, every year for as long as we live in whatever situation God's put us. But those are questions for this day and for this week too. Maybe you joined us this morning to see how we would be responding to the awful events that happened this week. Maybe you've been considering what it means to follow Jesus. You've been trying to, to listen to Christians talk about that, see how they respond to the things that happened to them so that you can get insight into to what it would mean for you to follow him too. And by this point in the service this morning, you've already gotten a taste of, of how we respond when things like, 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 like this shooting occur in the life of a Christian. We spent our moments together this morning focused on the promise that God was going to rescue us one day from this world full of sin and death. It is not forever. What about now while we wait? 
What about the situation that we're in? If you're wondering how we're responding to it, I'll just tell you, it is not lost on us that the events of this week didn't just happen. They happened to fellow Christians. Maybe you're thinking, if, if you can be a Christian and still be traumatized and killed even on a normal Monday morning, there must not be much to being a Christian. I mean, if you buy a canoe to go out on the river, you get out to the middle of the river, you realize it's got a leak, you got water coming into your boat, what you going to do? You're going to get back to the riverbank somehow, and you're going to take that canoe back where you got it. You're going to get a new one. The whole point of a canoe is to keep water out. The whole point of Christianity is to keep out suffering, to make sure that bad things never go our way. Then what happened on Monday would be a pretty good reason to start looking for a new canoe. But friend, if if that's what you're wondering, let me just be as clear as I can be. Let me tell you right now. The point of being a Christian is not to escape all suffering in this life but to know and enjoy God. There are so many things we Christians don't understand about him. And I can tell you what every other Christian who's been a Christian for any amount of time will tell you. We don't always get what we want from him either. And we don't know why he allows terrible things to happen to those that he loves. But we do know how he uses terrible things in the lives of his people. That we do know. Not just because he tells us, but because we've experienced it. He uses even terrible things in our lives to draw us deeper and deeper into who he is. And to show us more clearly than we could have known otherwise what a gift it is to have him for our God. We look to the the center of our hope as Christians, to the fact that, that God himself sent his son to die on the cross so that through that terrible injustice and suffering, we could be made new. And we say, if that could be turned to good, anything can be turned to good in the lives of God's people. And we hear his promise that that's exactly what he intends. This world is broken and it's unpredictable in the best of times. That reality doesn't change when you become a Christian. The difference is that we have hope in and through those bad things. That those bad things are not ultimate things. And even those bad things can be used for his purposes in our lives. So I would ask you, friend, looking at the same events that we're looking at, seeing the same truth come through those events, where do you look for hope? Where do you turn for redemption in the midst of what you can't change? Paul is telling us to remain right where we are and to enjoy God. That is the liberating perspective that we need. 
But the second thing he's telling us, the second point, the final thing to mention for this morning is Paul, Paul's point to us is remember, <laughs> remember where you're going and serve God. Look ahead from where you are now to where you will be then and give everything to him. This is verse 25. It carries through the end of the chapter in verse 40. Paul's picking up another topic they've written to him about. This time it's pretty closely connected to the first set of topics that, he wrote, that they wrote to him about. Uh, that, the first set was about sex and marriage and singleness. This, uh, this uh, section of, of questions is about what you should do if you're already betrothed to somebody to be married, but now you're a Christian. I mean, back then, it wasn't like you just meet somebody, fall in love, engage to them, and a year later, you're married. The, the, the betrothal process was really involved and could take a long, long time and could be something that you've been, you know, I was about to say stuck in, at least committed to from the time when you were a very young child. Uh, that, that's a big deal, right? It's a big part of life. It's public. Everybody knows about it. Now they're Christians. What do we do with that? And his answer is pretty straightforward. It's no sin to go ahead and get married if you want to. So, Jordan, it's good news for you, buddy. Zach, where are you at? Katie, you guys can go ahead, follow through with your plans to be married later this year. It is no sin. But, he says, it is a great advantage to be single. It is a great advantage to be single. And as in, is his way in this letter, he's not just making pronouncements. He's not just saying, he's not just answering the question and saying, okay, there, go do what you will with it. No, he's working into them the perspective he wants them to live with. He's teaching them to see everything about their lives through the life and the death and the resurrection and the future return of Jesus. He's talking about engagement and marriage and singleness, but he's really talking about what you can expect for your future and how that should affect your life now. Let me show you really quickly, with just a few minutes, what he's saying, why he's saying it, and what it means for us. What he's saying is really straightforward. He restates his point two times. The first point, the first time he does it is in verses 26 to 28. Then he comes back to it again in verses 36 to 38. And what he's saying is, if you're betrothed and you think you owe it to your fiance, maybe because she's beyond the age where she could easily find another husband, then, then do as you wish, verse 36. Or, uh, uh, do as you wish, let them be married, it is no sin, all right? So let your conscience be put at ease. But, verse 37, basically repeating what he said in that first paragraph, if you're establishing your heart, and you're under no necessity, you don't feel compelled to do it, your desires are under control. In other words, if you can do without it, do not feel compelled to marry. You do well to keep your fiance as your betrothed, not locked into a, a, you know, some sort of contractual relationship forever. That's how it could read. That's not what he means to say. He just means don't get married. She should stay as she is and you stay as you are. That's what he's saying. Verse 38 sums it up. He who marries his betrothed does well. He who refrains from marriage will do even better. So why? Why is he saying this? Why is this his perspective? Thankfully, he's really straightforward about that in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. 
from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they weren't mourning, and those who rejoice as though they weren't rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as, that they ho- as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. That's where he's coming from. Time is short, and this changes everything. We've got to be careful with his language here. We have to be careful to, to read it in light of what he says in other places. I mean, to let, let anyone who is married consider, uh, live as if he has no wife? Like, how do you square that with Ephesians 5, where Paul says husbands are supposed to love their wives like Jesus loves the church? He sacrificed himself for her. He aimed his life at purifying her. And, and Paul says there, husbands, that's your model. Go do it. We have to see what he says here in light of Ephesians 5. Or Romans 12, he gives this whole list of things that, that are supposed to mark the life of a Christian. And he says one of those things on the list is that they rejoice together. Like when something good happens to one of your brothers or sisters, it happened to you too. It makes you happy too. And when something bad happens to one of your brothers or sisters, it's like it happened to you. You mourn together. He's not saying that a Christian can't rejoice or can't mourn. He's not saying there's no place for joy or for sadness. He's not saying these things don't matter because they do. What he is saying in this section is that these important things that I spent time writing about in other letters, they can't compare to the importance of what's coming. They can't compare to the importance of what's coming. See, from the, from the moment that Jesus left the earth to the moment he returns, Paul sees that whole time as a supercharged time of anticipation. The world as we know it now, with all its beauty and all its brokenness, with all its temptations and all its disappointments, the world as it is in its present form, as he puts it, it's passing away. It's not ultimate. It's not gonna last forever. And there's a new world coming one that will be completely redeemed, a world purified and made whole. And anybody from anywhere can get in on this world that's coming. It's for anyone who will trust Jesus, but they'll only get in on it through Jesus, only through, through faith in his sacrifice on the cross. That's how Paul sees all of reality. It's the ultimate reality, what's coming and how to get in on it. And that's the perspective that he wants for us. And when you see that world as ultimate, when you see those as the stakes for every life, when that controls your perspective and you remember where you're going, that's going to take the edge off of your joys and the edge off your sorrows in this world. That's going to put a ceiling on how joyful you'll ever be in this world and how sorrowful you'll ever get. I'll never forget that my second son, Sam, was born on a Sunday. And in my line of work, that's something that you always wonder about you know you got to get your contingency plan worked out you know is it going to happen on a Sunday morning and what will that look like if it does and sure enough that's how it went down in the wee hours of a Sunday morning Lindsay woke me up told me this was really happening called in my relief pitcher for the day and we hit the road for the hospital I also remember that this particular Sunday was opening weekend for the NFL football season Titans first game was going on as they were checking us in at the hospital as they were setting us up in our room, as they were hooking her up to all manner of equipment. Game was always on wherever we went, you know? I mean, it's because, you know, it's a hospital, so anywhere there's a TV, that, that's what was on for the day. And, and, you know, being a Titans fan, 
I was paying a little bit of attention to that. I was glancing over every now and then just to see what's going on. Don't, don't hate me. The point of this illustration is not that I was glued to the TV, but that actually I wasn't. Not like I would have been on a normal Sunday. So I cared about that game. I mean, as a Titans fan, you know we're going to fall off the table by the end of the season. All we've got to hope for is an early, fast start. You know, like maybe we can at least win the first one. I cared about the outcome of that game. I wanted them to win and I wanted them not to lose. But my wife was giving birth. My son was being born. We've been waiting on this for months. This was the beginning of a relationship that Lord willing would last for years and already has. This was quite literally a pregnant moment for us. You see what I did there? And it shaped my perspective on everything else, including that Titans game. There are games that I'll never forget. Outcomes that are like permanently etched in my brain. I couldn't tell you whether we won or lost that day. Sam's birth took the edge off the joy or the sorrow, whichever it was. Because his birth was, in a way, the ultimate happening on September 9th, 2012. Paul's point is that with that perspective on where we're going, what matters to you now is what he goes on to call in verse 35, undivided devotion to the Lord. How can I serve him now while I wait for him then? Not what am I getting out of this world in its present form where nothing I get is mine to keep anyway. But what am I giving of my life for the work that he's called me to as his follower? So here's what that means for you. If you're single and you don't get married, you won't miss out on anything that ultimately matters. In fact, Paul says, some things that ultimately matter will come easier for you if you remain as you are. Paul's making a radical statement. They're radical in his context and radical in ours. In light of the kingdom that's coming, marriage is not the point of life. And in some ways, singleness is better. It's not plan B. You have, a, you have opportunities in your singleness to be a powerful force for good in God's kingdom. I see you, my single friends in our church, using those opportunities in all sorts of tremendous ways We would not be the church that we are without the single friends God has given to us who have leveraged their lives and every opportunity to make us healthier and holier as a congregation. And I think what Paul is saying to you if you're single is do not assume it would be better if you got married. Marriage cannot possibly fulfill you. For all the good that it brings, it can't fulfill you, but it can distract you. It can slow you down. It can divide your heart's devotion. So consider that today and pray about whether the Lord might be giving you the gift of long-term singleness so that you can serve his kingdom freely and fully. And if you're single and desire to be married, Paul's saying, that's okay too. Feel free to pray for it and to work towards it. So far as it relies on you, by all means, go for it. It's no sin, but make sure of this. Make sure when you go looking for a spouse as a single person, 
You are not prioritizing the things that belong to this present world that is passing away. You will be tempted to. How much money somebody makes, present world, passing away. What their appearance may be, present world, passing away. Where they are on the social ladder everybody's climbing and what they might do to your status, present world, passing away. What you're looking for is who is Jesus to them? Is their heart undivided? What are they devoted to? And make sure their devotion is matching yours. Because if it's not, your marriage will not be for the kingdom. It will slow you down in your desire to serve. And if you're married, praise God for that good gift. Praise God for that gift. But be careful. Paul's warning you here. In your marriage, you will be tempted to a divided heart. You will be tempted to leverage your marriage towards a bigger and bigger slice of the pie that is this present world that is passing away. It happens. It happens. So much of the work involved in building a life together and then in raising children together, it draws your heart towards things of this present world that's passing away. How easy to get absorbed in the house and the work and the schooling and the shuttling from one practice to another. Just navigating the basics of life. How easy in your parenting to just try to keep up with what everyone else is into in this rat race of the, for this biggest slice of pie. It takes constant effort to make sure your, your devotion to the Lord is undivided. Do that work if you're married. And for all of us, I hope you can see by now that this chapter is not ultimately about sex or singleness or marriage or slavery. This chapter is about perspective. Who are you to God? Where are you going? What difference will that make to your life now? And I think perhaps the best way to apply it is to pray the prayer of Ephesians chapter one, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we may know what is the hope to which he's called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? God make it so. Amen.